Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Darnowski. Hi, welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. A couple of announcements before we get to this week's show. First, the Politics Guys now has a Facebook page where, throughout the week, Jay and I post and comment on articles that have caught our eye. If you'd like to see what we're reading and to be part of the conversation, check it out. You can find our page at facebook.com slash page, or you can click on the link on the Politics Guys webpage, which is politicsguys.com. Second, we're giving away a year's subscription to the New Yorker magazine. That's 52 weekly issues with a total newsstand price of over $400. Why the New Yorker? Well, they offered me a free gift subscription if I renew my own subscription, and I thought, yeah, why don't I give it away to one of our listeners? So if you're interested, here's what you need to do. First, go to the Politics Guys iTunes page. There's a link to it on our website, which again is politicsguys.com, or you can find it by going to Apple's iTunes store or by searching for iTunes, the Politics Guys on Google. Next, write a review of the podcast on iTunes. You'll need to do this in the iTunes app. At least I think that's the only way to do it. And it can be a sentence, a paragraph, a novella, um, it can be good, it can be bad. Now, obviously, we'd prefer good, but just let people know how you feel about the podcast. Once you've done that, send us an email at politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com, letting us know that you've posted your review. And if the review isn't under your real name, be sure to tell us the name you've used. While you're at it, let us know if you have a question for our upcoming Politics Guys Question of the Week podcast. All entries need to be in by Sunday, December 20th. We'll pick one entry at random and notify the lucky winner by Monday, December 21st. The New Yorker only lets me gift the subscription for free to U.S. addresses, so if you're one of our international listeners, while we definitely appreciate a review, we aren't able to enter you into the drawing. And now, on to this week's show. Our top story this week is climate change politics. On Saturday, after two weeks of negotiations, representatives of 195 countries reached an agreement to limit the greenhouse gas emissions contributing to global climate change. Now, the targets agreed to would, if fully met, cut emissions by about half of what climate scientists estimate is needed to prevent global temperatures from reaching a tipping point that would result in devastating consequences. One thing I should point out, it's important to note that these emissions targets are not legally binding. The reason why is that legally binding targets would require the United States, which is the world's second largest emitter of greenhouse gases, to sign on to a treaty, which requires ratification by two-thirds of the Senate, something that definitely wasn't going to happen. So what do you think about uh, the, this big new announcement, Jay? Uh, yeah, I, I think this is sort of um, uh, – we'll go right along with the big announcements from Kyoto and the big announcement from Copenhagen. and. And things will be about pretty much the same as, as they have been. Um, I think it's sort of a, a whole lot of nothing. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess I guess that's that's about it. I wish I had more to say on that. But really, it is. It's sort of a some political posturing for uh, various folks to say they're they're uh, for the environment and so forth. But, 
uh, not going to make a big difference one way or the other. Well, I couldn't disagree more. So that works out really well. Excellent. Yes. Well, I mean, I think it's very different from Kyoto, uh, which was, I don't know, like 10 years ago, late 90s or something. Yeah, even more early 90s, where they tried to actually set legally binding uh, agreements, which certainly would wouldn't work and you know we weren't ready for that and we're close to ready for that but i think the thing that's different about this is that uh, the basic format of the agreement was different in that all the countries were asked to come up with their own uh, their own plans that they felt were achievable within their own political systems and so i think this makes it a lot more likely that something's going to happen so i believe that these talks can potentially, or this agreement can potentially represent a real turning point where in generations to come, people will look back and say, well, you know, we we dodged a bullet here and it started with this agreement, which certainly doesn't give us, I think, everything that we want in terms of helping to reverse the negative effects of climate change, but is absolutely a first step in the right direction. This is the day the oceans stop rising. Well, no, and, no, and you <laughs> joke about it, but I mean the consequences I think are, are, are going to be potentially devastating, especially if you're living in a place like the Marshall Islands or any low-lying, low-lying territories. And I think we need to do something, and I think this is the start of that something. Or, or, my, or Miami, as we talked about last week. Or Miami, as we talked about last week. Yeah, it's, it's certainly easy to joke about. I think it's going to be a lot harder to joke about 30, 40 years from now. And I, but I, I'm hoping that we won't have to because we'll have we'll have actually done something and so this absolutely a lot of a lot of climate change activists are very disappointed in this agreement because they wanted it to be legally binding and they wanted it to focus on getting a cut of around two degrees Celsius, which is some people feel is sort of that tipping point. But I mean, just having some sort of agreement in place, this is really, this is really a first, this is the first major international agreement that might potentially mean something. And so I'm not happy with it in its entirety, but I really think it's a step in the right direction. I think it's a, it's a great move forward. All right. Well, let let me, let me play the devil's advocate uh, on this and say that um first you know most most times binding agreements are tough enough to enforce um we've talked about that numbers of times about look when you have a a, a binding emissions agreement with say china uh i mean how how confident are you that they are standing by the agreement um how confident are we in any of these things i mean it's uh, trust but verify and this is something that's not easy to verify. Uh, when you have a, a, a situation where uh, it's not binding and everyone gets to pick how they do it on their own and, and, and sort of measure it on their own, I, I, mean, I think you have a real, real big, uh, big nothing. Well, and, and, and I agree with you in part. I think it depends on what your goal is for this. Now, I, I don't expect every I don't expect every country to meet their targets. I expect there to be some some fudging on the on the measurements. Absolutely. So, on that part, I agree with you entirely. But that's not what I expect of this agreement. I believe that for a potential global catastrophe in the you know in the middle part of this of this century, that we need to start somewhere. 
and we were never going to start with a, with a binding agreement for, for major cuts. That was never going to happen. So I don't see this as the be-all and end-all. I see this as a first step. And uh, part of the agreement was that they would meet every five years after this to try to strengthen these, uh, to strengthen these provisions. And I think that's going to happen. So absolutely. Right. Every, every country is supposed to, uh, after I believe it's, yeah, four or five years, uh, they evaluate their targets and they review their targets and uh, determine whether they're on track or whether they need to update them. Um, you know, my, my target had been to, uh, back in October to lose like 20 pounds by Christmas. Um, and, and I'm, I'm updating that, that, uh, target and I'm, I'm thinking, well, now I'd like to maybe lose two or three pounds by Christmas. Um, <laughs> so it's sort of, I think that's how it's going to, well, you know, and th- I think that's a good analogy because a lot of research in things, in, in things like habit change, weight loss, what have you, suggests that one one thing you need to do to start with is to have a target. The second thing you need to do is to publicly announce and commit to that target. And <laughs> research, no, research has found that people who do this are a lot more successful. Whereas if you just say, well, maybe I should lose some weight or maybe I shouldn't, but I'm not going to say anything or do anything about it. Well, then you know you're not going to lose any weight. So I think that's a great analogy. Analogy. So, I mean, I think you're you're arguing my case essentially. So, I absolutely. That's a great argument for uh, losing weight and changing personal habits. Uh, but I think it's it's something different when we're talking about a government making uh, policies, um, particularly uh, places like China, places like India. Uh, they are going to want to develop, uh, and and I think them developing will eventually be a good thing for the uh, uh, environment. Uh, but, uh, I, I, so let, let's put it this way. I guess, I guess my, I, I would be happy because I, I don't think this will actually do anything that will, uh, uh negatively impact, uh, the American economy, um, that wasn't probably going to happen already. Um, uh, and I don't think it will, I suppose it won't harm global emissions. Uh, uh, supposing that's a problem, does it create a, a, uh, maybe a false sense of security that we're doing something, you know, if there is a problem that we're doing something um, when we're really not, I don't know. Um, but uh, I'll also, I'll also be happy to make a bet. And this, this is something that will pay off years and years and years from now um, that uh, in, in 30 years or so uh, uh, you and I, if we're still doing this uh, podcast can, can have a conversation about what didn't happen. Uh, and likely there'll be people who say, see, it's because of, that treaty we signed back in uh, December of 2015, um, uh, others will say no because it wasn't happening anyway. But that's for another day. Yeah, and I don't think this treaty is going to do anything big in and of itself. Again, I see it as a, a starting point. And I think for us to actually tackle this problem in a real way, it's going to take uh, a lot more investment in uh, alternative uh, power sources. It's going to take a lot more investment in solar. It's going to take a lot more investment in in wind. It's going to take a lot more, I think, uh, nuclear power. And I think unless we do those things, we're going to run into these problems no matter what. And I'm hoping that in part, this agreement serves as kind of a signal to the, the business community, the investment community, which is where the real money is and where I think the real change, the real innovation is going to happen. Because I think the more investment we see in kind of low-carbon energy sources, the better off we're going to be in the long run. And the guys at Solyndra, uh, their mouths are watering. They're getting ready to get back in the game. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, you know, and, and of course, it's it, certainly there, there's always going to be scandals, and you can absolutely point to those things. But I think you're you're ignoring the bigger picture, and it's real easy to pick at that. But I think the you know the science on this I think is fairly clear, and I think even if there are some doubts, and certainly there are some doubts, there's a thing called the precautionary principle. The idea being that even if there is even a small chance of this happening, if the consequences are incredibly devastating, it makes sense to take some steps to minimize that risk. And I know we've had this conversation before, so I think we're probably going to have to agree to disagree on this one. Although one thing I would want to just point out, because that someone made a similar argument uh, citing to the famous, uh, I think it was uh, Pascal's uh, wager Major. Um, on our Facebook page about, about you know, <clears throat> arguing that, uh, look, it's, you're, you're better off, um, uh, you know, whether or not to be an atheist or believe in God. If your choices are well, I, I will uh, be a believer, uh, and the the upside is there's you spend a uh, life uh, in heaven. Uh, the potential downside is you're condemned to hell for all eternity, um, and there's no there's no real downside in this life. Uh, I would say climate change and, and steps that we do to to cut things, particularly, and I'm not, I'm not talking about look if if someone can come up with a great way to do uh, lower emissions. Uh, that is not tremendously uh, create a tremendous cost on a uh, drag on the economy. I think that's fantastic. It's called nuclear. Uh, well, and and I I agree. I'm okay with that. Um, uh, I don't think you you see many conservatives who are out there complaining about uh, nuclear. That's power. true. That the bigger part of that problem <laughs> absolutely is with uh, my side of things. Absolutely. So my people. so if you get those guys in line, I think we're we're set. But but my point being. Um, it's not as if uh, this is just a uh, there's no downside in doing it because I think there there is a downside when you take actual real carbon cutting steps or the the way these trees have been structured the the way that it goes it's not so much cutting emissions it's just making emissions more expensive right uh, and and hoping that uh, people will, will will cut them fair point that's that's so. a really good point I can absolutely agree on uh, very much of that I think part of the part of the issue though is that we're still subsidizing uh, dirty carbon carbon emitting fuels and I think that needs to stop but I I, I think you're right by by destroying or not destroying, but certainly by hampering the economy, that's not the way to go. And so it's development and innovation that's going to ultimately save us from this, if you think we need saving from this, and I do, and not draconian cuts in energy usage. That's not the way to go. That's not going to happen. So we, I think we can agree right, on that. Yeah. All right. There you go. All right. Moving on. Uh, last Sunday, President Obama delivered a primetime speech from the Oval Office in which he vowed that the United States would overcome the terrorist threat. The president promised more airstrikes but argued against troops on the ground to fight ISIS, saying that this would be playing right into their hands by boosting re recruitment of terrorists abroad and in the United States. He also called for banning gun sales to people on the terrorism no-fly list, which echoes a policy proposal of many Democrats in the wake of the San Bernardino attack. And then on Monday, Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump called for a total and complete shutdown on all Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what's going on, in Trump's words. <laughs> 
Yeah, his remarks were met with immediate bipartisan condemnation from political elites, though the proposal may have actually boosted his popularity with the far right base that's kept him in the top spot in the polls for months. So, well, what do you, well, go ahead. Okay, please. go ahead. No, I was, <laughs> I was, I was going to ask you, what, what, what do you make of all this, Jay? Well, first of all, I, w- I would quibble with the um, uh, claim that's the far right base. <clears throat> we can get to that in a minute. I okay. think it's, it's the Trump base. Uh, and I don't know whether they're particularly far right. They're called the wacko something. right? Yeah. They're, okay. far, they're, they're far something. Um, uh, no, I, I guess on the um, uh, president's uh, statement, I, I don't I don't really get it. It was sort of a, again, just a eh, kind of moment. Uh, uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's interesting. It wasn't particularly – I don't think people felt it was particularly reassuring. Um, uh, I don't think people felt this was some sort of a call to action. Uh, it was just sort of, you know, kind of a standard Obama kind of statement of, look, we're going to get rid of ISIS uh, eventually, but we're not really going to – do too much and uh, uh, don't worry about it. And that that's, I think that's, that's not what people want to hear. They want to have some sort of plan for action and that um, like banning you know, all Muslims, he, he, this, you know, sending troops would play into ISIS's hands. I mean, making statements like that uh, sort of plays into Trump's hands. Well, I think I think it's, I think you're right in the sense in that he didn't. I mean, you're absolutely right that he didn't call for any major new action. But sometimes I think that's not the right thing to do, and that's actually more of a conservative position in the in the you know in the older sense of conservative is just because something happens and it can be something tragic and horrible. Sometimes the worst thing to do is have some sort of knee-jerk reaction, and it seems to me pretty clear that what ISIS would love for us to do is get deeply involved in a ground war there, which would be a would be a fantastic thing for recruitment. And the last thing we want to do is to create more extremists both here and uh, and around the world. And I think a, a ground war would absolutely do that. And so I, I totally agree with the president on that. Do, do you or how do you feel about that? No, I, I and I'll qualify this by saying I, I'm always one to admit uh, what I don't know. And that's something I don't know. I, I I don't know enough, and and I think we could we could talk and read up because I've I've read some things about this. That yeah, that's the one argument is that ISIS wants a clash of civilizations. They want this epic Armageddon type battle between the East and the West, uh, and well, we shouldn't engage them in that. <clears throat> and and there may be some sense to that, um, but there's there's also um, uh, some sense in. Uh, you know, the, Don Rumsfeld uh, used to say in, in um, some of the briefings on the, the Iraqi situation, uh, or this was Afghanistan, I guess, that, you know, our goal is to to neutralize these various uh, Taliban and, and uh, al-Qaeda cells. And uh, by neutralize, I mean kill them. <laughs> you know? Sure. So, I mean, I think there's there's something to be said for that. Um, uh, we had we had an enormous, you know, there there are there are those who say that, you know, violence, war never solved anything. Um, well, of course, but, that's silly. Exactly. And it, it certainly, it ended uh, ended slavery. It ended the uh, uh, Nazism. I mean, sometimes sometimes that is what's necessary. Definitely. And I'm not, I, I, I don't have enough strategic info um, to really make a judgment call. Are we better off doing this? You know, let's not, uh, lesser touch, lighter touch means less recruitment. Um I think there's a good case that look, we pulled out of Iraq, uh, we pulled out of mostly out of Afghanistan, 
And that's when ISIS blossomed. So to say that a, a military presence um, breeds recruitment, I don't know that that's the case. Now, well, I suppose okay. you could say, well, it, it bred the recruitment beforehand and then they exactly. showed up. Exactly, yeah. That's not what I was going to say is that, well, we the fact that we invaded in the first place was, was the real problem in that sense. But that that's maybe another argument for another time. But, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. We need to – I think the goal for everyone is the same, is to minimize the threat that ISIS poses. And if, and if going in and being on the ground and trying to kill them all is – if that's the way to do it, well, then that's the way you do it. But if – Doing that sort of thing will result in more terrorism than not. Then, of course, no reasonable person wants to do that. And I think the key thing to do, especially when we're talking about risking American lives, is to be very careful about what we call for and not to just jump into this without without very serious consideration of the uh, of the consequences of the of what's sometimes called blowback. Yeah, fair enough. And this is this is actually what my issue with the Obama speech was. Uh, is because it was sort of a, again, a neither here nor there. Um, and uh, generally, oh, and be nice to Muslims. Uh, and I think it, it sort of left left the American public, and I would say other other nations, kind of scratching their head of, look, what what are the Americans going to do, and what aren't they going to do? Is is there a, um, I guess, I mean, my my thing is, look, if you're not going to to take a change in policy, then why make a speech? Um, Sure. Uh, you know, the, Obama has made, I, I think there was only one other, maybe two others. Two others, yeah, from uh, the Oval Office. Primetime addresses from the Oval Office, you know, which which are a, a big deal. So I think if you're going to if you're gonna use that that time um, and make that kind of address, then you ought to have something sure. big to say. And, and I see your point. Uh, I think that's a good point. Uh, I, I feel that President Obama felt that given that this was the, the San Bernardino thing was the biggest attack on, on U.S. soil terrorist attack since 9-11, that he needed to have some sort of response, needed to go on the air and say something. But you're right. I mean, he didn't have anything major in the way of new initiatives. And, and I think that that's or, or even or even at that point, labeling it as definitively as a terrorist attack. Which, which I think you know, pretty much he, he has. I, I think people yeah. are, I know has come around, but again, yeah. it was it was soft pedaled. It was it was a, uh, you know, it was not viewed as this is a terrorist attack upon the United States. It was well, here's a couple of deranged individuals who, who have uh, misconstrued uh, teachings of Islam and may have been uh, inspired by the wrong people. Well, that sounds about um, right, though. I mean, well, no, they're no, terrorists, certainly. And, so, but uh, th- again, it's it's. Um, this is something we'll talk about later. It's almost, it's a little bit clickbaity. You know what I mean? Okay. Okay. It um, is like major announcement. President from the Oval Office is going to speak to the Amer- directly to the American public tonight. And I think it was designed to, ideally, to inform and reassure. And pretty clearly, you were not reassured. I'm, I'm not. I okay. wasn't, yeah, particularly. Fair enough. No, again, I, I, let's put it this way. I, I wasn't particularly concerned in the first place. Right. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I don't walk around in fear of a terrorist attack. Does it concern me that these things are happening? Absolutely. Okay, fair enough. So, what about uh, what about Trump's response to all this? The call to ban all Muslims. Uh, you know, the the Trump proposal. Uh, I would would echo the comments of of most of the what you call, I guess, the establishment Republicans is. Yes, it's it's kind of crazy and over the top. And I my first impulse, you know, I read these headlines, and 
as a conservative consumer of the media, uh, you always suspect that, okay, this isn't really what he said. Uh, that can't really be right. Right. Well, well uh, Trump. It must, it must be being taken out of context. And you go and you look and you dig deeper and, uh, okay, he did say those words. And again, well, is, is the context correct? Is that really what he said? Yeah, it is. Uh, <laughs> this is standing, you know, and so I, I mean, I, I'm a little bit uh, dumbfounded uh, uh, that no one's. Uh, I, I guess that 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 would you make those kind of statements as a presidential candidate. Um, and yet, uh, it seems to really have helped them out. There was a recent poll too that came out about the, uh, for Republican primary voters, which candidate you feel is uh, has the best plan, or you feel most comfortable in his potential handling of terrorism, and Donald Trump clearly came out uh, on top with his knee jerk, not at all well thought out proposals that just, it just, wow. It says a lot about, I think it says a lot about the primary electorate. That's for sure. Well, it it does. Again, if that's really the primary electorate, because we can talk about that. Um, They're claiming to be the primary electorate at this point. And I suppose we ought to take them at their word. Uh, But, but regardless, no, he, he had a bump in the polls uh, and the other thing that's, that's sort of funny is um, Donald Trump never walks anything back. No. Uh, you know, sometimes there's the outrageous comment by by a politician and they come back and say, well, no, what I meant was, uh, uh, you know, something a little less uh, less inflammatory. Um, but no, he tends to go the other way. The double down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've read things about him that is this is just this part of a Trump negotiating sort of mindset. Uh, that you ask for something absolutely ridiculous that you, that you know you'll never get, like the presidency, uh, then, maybe uh, I don't know. You know, then when you when you end up actually reaching some sort of a uh, a compromise, it's it's closer to your end of the field than the other guy's end of the field. Sure. Um, which again may may work on on things like real estate transactions, um, but I think it's difficult, more difficult in uh, policy situations. That said. <clears throat> You know, other folks have pointed out that uh, Jimmy Carter banned um, Iranians from coming to the country after the uh, the, the hostage crisis began. Right. Um, FDR shut off immigration from uh, Germany uh, and Italy and, and Japan when World War II began. Now, I I, I, I see this. I see the distinction there. I look, on the one hand, you're not um, supporting this policy of proposal. No, no, Trump's. I'm not. Well, I, I would say. You know, in in those days, first of all, let's take the World War II example. It was a world war. Uh, it was a different situation. It was de- uh, declared war uh, uh, against um, specific nation states. Sure. Uh, secondly, we didn't have the resources back then to do the kind of background checking that we do now. Uh, not saying that what we do now is perfect um, or even adequate, but we certainly didn't have it back in uh, in, in 1942. Um, on the Carter one, again, he's talking about banning um, immigrants from a country, uh, not banning immigrants of, of a particular religion, right. which, is, which is the more troublesome thing that, that really strikes, um, strikes me and most, most Americans as something that's uh, un-American. Um, and, and more to the point, it's, I think it's, it's unfeasible. Well, I, uh, I, I got to say, it seems like you've <clears throat> thought about this a lot more than Donald Trump has. 
Well, I thought probably, you know, who hasn't probably? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He's not not known for his deep and searching analysis of foreign policy issues, I don't think, or or domestic policy issues. There was was this big blowback of, you know, Donald Trump is is the new new Hitler, and this is... Well, uh, that's just ridiculous. ...and so forth, and... um, Yes, yeah, so certainly it, it has some elements in in common with that, uh, um, but I, I'd say he's more of a, a Mussolini type. Absolutely, figure yeah, Def- definitely. Uh, uh, just just the idea of look, a strong executive is going to make the trans run on time. Uh, but that said, I, I don't, you know, Nazism, fascism to some extent were actual sort of political theories, uh, and Trump Donald has Trump no was, theory. Yeah, yeah, he just sort of says stuff. Yes, exactly. He just sort of what it goes with his gut, and yeah, yeah, exactly. So he's a massive id, disconnected from any sort of deeper rationality. I think, and so you can kind of understand why that might appeal to a certain segment of the electorate. I guess. Right. Right. Anyway. Um, again, of the electorate, and are they actually people who are going to vote? Um, and and we'll see on that. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. But you know, I, I think this has given a a good. Um, uh, pivot point sort of for a lot of the other Republican candidates. Uh, Kasich in particular has been um, attacking Trump on this. Uh, and I think it, it, it is a good issue for a lot of, of other Republicans. And I think it sort of serves the Republican brand um, to have Donald Trump be sort of as the, the outlier uh, far out there. You can say, no, the Republican establishment. Sure. makes uh, makes the rest of them look a little less insane. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. There was a, a meme. And again, I, I hate sort of the Facebook, uh, you know, political argument by meme, but it was a thing of, you know, remember when Sarah, Sarah Palin was the, the scariest. Republican yeah, I've seen candidate. that one. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. Yeah, definitely. So. All right. Well, uh, moving on to an issue where actually we have some good news, where there's some real bipartisan agreement, which is a, a rare and wonderful thing, I think. On Thursday, President Obama signed into law the Every Student Succeeds Act, a massive overhaul of the much-hated No Child Left Behind Act 2001. As I mentioned, it was a rare moment of bipartisan agreement. It passed by a vote of 381 to 41 in the House and 87 to 10 in the Senate. Now, the new law preserves the federally mandated testing of No Child Left Behind, but it lets states set their own standards for progress, bars the federal government from imposing requirements like Common Core, and has almost no consequences for states that fail to meet academic requirements. So what do you think about this? Is this the move in the right direction, Jay? You know, people are going to uh, have gone soft on Obama, but no, actually, I think it is. Um, I was never a fan of No Child Left Behind. Um, uh, I think there were some commentators, uh, General Goldberg among them, said, you know, really, shouldn't we leave some of them behind? Um, <laughs> Just but, as uh, ridiculous as every student succeeds, obviously, these exactly, things are you know, aspirational um, goals. No, and I think the, the problems they have with, with uh, No Child Left Behind is it's it's the federalizing of, of things that ought to be left uh, to state and local governments. Um, yeah, and I think on, on that line... Take a, st- a step back and, and cede more uh, uh, authority, more uh, responsibility back to the states where I think it belongs. And we should point out that No Child Left Behind, which was passed under George W. Bush, was also passed with strong bipartisan majorities, but then... Exactly. It was, it was George Bush and Teddy Kennedy. Absolutely uh, so. Together and put this together, and uh, many conservatives were skeptical and not crazy about it then, and um, again, probably aren't going to be crazy about this this new iteration. But but I think it's the fact that that you've got uh, more authority to the states, and you're getting rid of the uh, Common Core uh, mandate. Uh, I, I think that's that's 
beneficial in the long run. Yeah, and most everyone seems to agree on that. And I should point out that the federal government really isn't as big a player in K-12 through funding maybe as a lot of people think. They do give a lot of money, around $76 billion a year. But that's only – it's not even 13 percent of the almost $600 billion a year that are spent in total on K-12 through spending. And so I think a lot of people feel that, well, with that small amount that's actually going into funding, the federal government shouldn't have that much of a say if they're not ponying up a whole lot of money, which seems reasonable right. to me. I'd, I'd, I'd argue even the, the other way around that um, – you know, look, the Department of Education was created on, on uh, Jimmy Carter's watch. Uh, and wow, most, this is becoming the Jimmy Carter episode. Very odd. This is the first time I've mentioned them. No, I guess second time. time. That's right. So, anyway, uh, many many conservatives were angered that that uh, Reagan didn't abolish it, uh, which was something he had he had uh, promised to do. Um, uh, but but yeah, historically, uh, education's been a, a function of state and local governments, and I think there's something great about that in that. Um, States and local governments can can work out what works best for them, and you have this sort of laboratories of democracy, uh, where you you see what you know. Some states are going to do better than others, but then you can take a look at what works and what doesn't, as opposed to just imposing one national federal policy uh, that would tend to, uh, at least in my view, uh, dumbs everything down to sort of a lowest common denominator. Uh, it prevents the innovations that states may have. Uh, and, and can make uh, in, in sort of a just general uh, baseline. So, Jay, Jay, on this issue, you are absolutely right. I Amen. Could not agree more. I, I don't think there's. I don't think there are going to be that many issues where you and I are see t- see things pretty much totally the same way. This is one of these rare issues. It's always nice when it pops up. I think. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's actually more education news this week. Uh, turning to higher education, actually. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Fisher versus University of Texas, a case involving affirmative action admissions at Texas's flagship university. The case was brought by a white student who argued she was denied admission to UT due to her race. Now, under Texas law, the top 10% of each high school class uh, graduating class in the state is automatically admitted which in and of itself increases diversity due to sort of natural segregation in Texas's high schools. But in addition to this, the school also considers race as a factor for applicants not in the top 10% of the case of the class. And Abigail Fisher, the woman bringing the suit finished outside of the top 10%. So, and, and based on the oral argument, as did 90% of the other students. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So now based on the oral arguments, it looks very much like this is going to be a 5-4 decision against UT, a decision that would affect college affirmative action plans throughout the United States. Justice Kennedy, who's likely to be the swing vote, as he often is, he's never voted to uphold an affirmative action plan. So it seems like, I mean, uh, the smart money is going to say that affirmative action plans across the country are going to have to be reworked. Is this a good thing or a bad thing, Jay, in your perspective? Well, I'll wait till we actually get a decision before I'd say it's a, a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but uh, historically, yeah, I'd say absolutely it's a, a good thing. Um, as, as Justice Roberts said, the best way to stop discriminating by race is to stop discriminating by race. Uh, and that's that's unfortunately what, what we've, we've come to. And uh, we can have another conversation just about the general culture of our, our colleges and our campuses and 
uh, how race has been elevated to to be the the end all be all and uh, more divisive. Uh, that, that our colleges are essentially becoming engines of divisiveness rather than uh, passing on sort of the the common culture that uh, all Americans, all Westerners, uh, the things that we we prize most. Um, we're sort of getting it, it sliced up into identity politics. Well, I think uh, Justice Roberts also said, uh, what unique perspective does a minority student bring to a physics class? And to me, that statement encapsulates what a lot of conservatives miss about this. It's not about bringing a unique perspective to a physics class. It's about exposing people to diversity, which has larger, more important benefits than um, that, that aren't related to a physics class. And I think that is a valuable contribution to society. And I think race absolutely should be considered not as the be-all and end-all, which, which I don't believe it is in any case, but as one factor among many. And I, I have no problem with that. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a healthy thing. And I think it's something that higher education should strive to include. All right, fair enough. Uh, and you can say that's that's uh, race ought to be a factor, and the diversity is is part of the educational experience. And I would agree with you one hundred percent. Next question would be, where do you find that in the Constitution? Well, I don't know that that's anywhere in the Constitution, but I don't see and that. Hence, that's... hence the problem. <laughs> I mean, there was there was the idea when affirmative action uh, started. The, the idea was, listen, you have minorities who have been historically discriminated against. And institutions need to take steps to remedy that past discrimination. Um, in the the um, uh, University of Michigan case, uh, probably about so 10, 12 years ago, um, the court, uh, again, 5-4, adopted that new rationale of, listen, it's it's the diversity, it's, it's a, sitting next to someone who's different than you that's part of the educational experience. And again, I agree that is that is important to the educational experience. Um, but does it justify uh, excluding some uh, and, and not others when that, that comes down to race? So we'll see what the opinion says. But uh, my, my point, I think, where a lot of the conservative justices will be is um, diversity may well be a, a good goal. Uh, but maybe there's other ways to achieve it than the type of, of programs that uh, UT has uh, created. And we should point out that there, in the past, schools had actual quotas to increase diversity, and the Supreme Court a while back said that that was not okay, but that right. having race as one factor among many was permissible. And this is what may be overturned in, in, this, uh, in this ruling, which is expected sometime early this summer, I believe. Yep. And so we will definitely have more on that when the ruling comes out this summer. But there's also uh, there was a lot of talk on the Internet this week about Justice Scalia's comments. And he caught a lot of flack. And I know that's something that was really irritating to you. And I thought maybe you could explain what 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 the issue you had about the uh, what Justice Scalia had or at least the reaction to it. Well, I think it would be irritating to you, too, because you, you don't always um, agree with Scalia, but I think you always appreciate where he's coming from. Uh, and in this case, he made comments um, during oral argument saying, listen, some have argued, uh, and those some being actually uh, people who wrote briefs, uh, that uh, minority students might not be as, as, might be better served if they weren't in uh, the more difficult school. I'm going to pull up his, his exact words. But it was, he suggested 
There are those who contend that it does not benefit African Americans to get them into the University of Texas, where they do not do well, as opposed to having them go to less advanced schools, a slower track, where they do do well. Um, now, again, the the uh, internet reaction was uh, Scalia says African American students should be on a slower track, uh, which isn't what he said. It's not what he said. Harry Reid actually even went out on the on the Senate floor and said that. And and this troubles me on a whole lot of levels. First of all, just the first of all misstatement of of what he said. But secondly, his job as a as a Supreme Court justice in oral argument is to to get the push people push the uh, each side on their arguments. Um, the University of Texas sort of went in there with a presupposed idea that, well, we necessarily have to have uh, minority students uh, for this reason because uh, they they will uh, succeed and it's it's important. And the other side pointed out, no, um, a lot of the the studies show that uh, sometimes when when minority students are placed in those schools, they don't they do not do as well. Um, well, and I don't and think I don't think good, I, you know good, good, fair, and indifferent. But it's it's these are the arguments, and you need to have that discussion. Well, I don't think anyone, I don't think any reasonable person feels that unqualified people, whatever their race, should be admitted to the University of Texas or any university for that matter. I think that's that's completely obvious. So I think the argument is well, if somebody is not, because obviously students vary in their preparedness for college. And so traditionally, colleges have uh, allowed uh, students who are not quite as academically prepared to enter and they offer developmental courses and things like that. And I don't see I don't see that there's anything wrong with that. Do you? No, no. Um, the issue, the issue is more, are, are you excluding someone else who is, is, is prepared, who could do well, and you're saying no, you're we're not going to give you that opportunity because here's a minority uh, who is less prepared through through no fault of their own or, or for whatever reason, but you're not going to go get into this elite school um, because we've we've made up our mind on on diversity. See, I think that's a reasonable argument for a private institution, like mm-hmm. uh, especially for an elite private institution like a Harvard or Yale or something like that. But for a public institution, I feel that the public, a public institution has, uh, has, has more of a mandate to, to, to work on things like diversity and so forth. Harvard can say, well, we don't care about that. Now, Harvard hasn't said that, but I think public, public institutions have a, have a greater, have, have a greater responsibility to care about things like diversity that private institutions don't have. I think that's a good argument, but also consider in this case, we're talking about the University of Texas, which, as you described, is the flagship school of their state university system. Um, it's it's one thing, you know, to say uh, we want to bring more people in. Uh, does that mean at every school at every level? I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but, but my point is uh, Scalia is being unfairly maligned for doing what is essentially his job. And I think, and, the, yeah, I think the part of it that we can agree on is Scalia's comments were 
taken, uh, at least in a sense, out of context to make it seem like he was saying something that he wasn't actually saying. And of course, you mentioned clickbait earlier, and the media does this all the time, much more so now than ever. It reminded me of, uh, I'm sure you've seen it, a poll that recently came out that said Americans are more concerned about terrorism at any time since even after you know 9-11. And I thought to myself immediately, well, sure, take a look at how the media has changed since 9-11. We didn't have smartphones. We didn't have this kind of totally clickbait-dominated media. And I think part of that is what's driving so much of the uninformed, uh, uh, over-the-top political commentary that's so designed to just get people to, like you said, click on, click on the headline. Well, on that note, that's about all the time we have for this week's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have any questions for our new Ask the Politics Guys segment or just any thoughts, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. Our Facebook page, where Jay and I post and comment on news articles throughout the week, and where you can comment too, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. That's one word, politicsguys page. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. The Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.